Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A desire to bring the truth to the forefront and a refusal to back down. The Roy Green Show continues. I remember the first time, I really do remember the first time I uh, heard Charles Krauthammer give an opinion. I just uh, had tuned into a television station, and there was this this individual sounding absolutely brilliant, but in a way that even I could understand what he was saying. And then I started to follow his writings, which were with the Washington Post, and, uh, and then caught up with him again when he became a commentator for Fox News. And uh, on Thursday, Charles Krauthammer died after a battle with cancer. He had been uh, told just about four weeks ago that, and he thought his cancer was, was gone. There was no trace of it. And then his doctors told him one day, while he thought there was no cancer left, that he only had weeks to live. It had metastasized. And so he died on Thursday, and uh, literally people globally were and are mourning the loss of Charles Krauthammer and his unique way of seeing the world. He'd uh, written a book that was released in 2014, wrote a number of books, but the, the one that I'm referring to was the book that he wrote called Things That Matter, and it was a book about his columns. And uh, here's my conversation with the incredible Charles Krauthammer from 2014, and it begins with my speaking to Mr. Krauthammer about the State of a Union address and the power of a phone and a pen in the Oval Office. Charles, President Obama this week delivered his State of the Union address. I kept waiting for something of real interest and didn't hear much of anything. Minimum wage, unemployment benefits, as well as the threat to go it alone in his office with his pen and his phone. Not much of a threat metaphor, I don't think. But can he do much with just the stroke of a pen in the Oval Office? And I know you wrote a column recently that America now has a Senate with no rules and a president without boundaries. Yes, uh, he has uh, sort of trampled the clear constitutional, uh, over the constitutional constraints of the presidency. There's no question about that. Nonetheless, there isn't that much he can do, which is why he's resorting to this. Uh, slogan, I have a pen, I have a phone. Um, I mean, if you're waiting for something significant to come out of Obama in the State of the Union or otherwise, you will grow old waiting because his presidency is just about done. He's now entering lame duckness much earlier than the norm. Usually it happens after year six when you have that midterm election and you're on your last two. Here, uh, everybody's obsessed with Hillary Clinton and the Republican field. With three years to go, there's not much energy and even interest. Uh, you might have seen that the uh, ratings for his State of the Union address, which have gone consistently down on a straight line from his first to today, are the lowest uh, he's ever had, lowest, in, I think, in 15 years. Um, and that's a reflection of people's, of his growing irrelevance in some sense. I kept waiting to hear something, and most of us in Canada were hoping he would say something about the Keystone Pipeline and 
as we know, there was was nothing. Is Mr. Obama skating in place on Keystone? And I much enjoyed your column last week in which you advised the president to, quote, stop jerking Canada around. I just find it, I mean, even if I hadn't spent my childhood, a rather happy childhood, growing up in your country and have all the affection I still do for it, I would have written the same damn thing. Canada is the closest American ally ever. And our nearest friend, uh, most generous. And, I mean, just the fact that he has left Canada dangling for five years, just this act of cynicism to me is staggering. There are no good arguments against building it. He knows it. It's a pure political ploy to appease his environmental left. He's now been reelected. He's not going to run again. There is every reason to approve it, and he had postponed it through the 2012 election for cynical reasons. Fine. Well, that election is way over. Why isn't he acting? And I think it is to appease his left base. He's afraid he's going to lose the Senate in the midterm elections, which will make him utterly powerless and irrelevant. And I think he's now going to postpone it at least through the midterm elections. And who knows? I think he's likely to say no, actually. I, I had always thought he would say yes. He was simply you know, trying to time it so it does the least political damage to him. Although public opinion generally is very pro. It's his base he worries about. And certainly this country is, uh, is fed up, as, as you know, and our foreign affairs minister said as much in polite, polite tones, and the longer he waits, the less I think of an issue it's going to be to Canada. Um, well, I know, because I, you obviously have an alternative. And the idea of the environmental left here, that if we don't take uh, your oil, it's going to stay in the ground, is preposterous. No one's going to leave it in the ground. It's a great national resource. And there are a lot of people who want its product. And you can go west, or you could ship it by truck, you know, by, or, or by rail, of course, which, as you know from that terrible experience in Quebec, is a very dangerous way to do it. But the cynicism of this administration will, uh, uh, implies that they will, they will tolerate it being brought by rail or even tolerate losing the resource if it can sustain the Democrats and get them through these uh, midterm elections. Let me talk about your book, uh, Things That Matter, uh, number one on the New York Times bestseller list for 10 weeks. Great, great book about so many different issues we're all involved with in our lives. 30 years of columns and essays about a wide range of subject matter. I, I want to get into that with you, but just, be, just before I do that, is it fact that you wrote your first column on the day Ronald Reagan was inaugurated and were you already at that time a conservative thinker, or had you not made the transition from the left to the right side of the philosophical spectrum by then? Uh, I was in the phone booth removing my Clark Kent glasses, <laughs> but not yet dressed in the Superman suit. Basically, I began as a liberal Democrat, a great society liberal, and, and I didn't have an epiphany. I didn't wake up one morning, uh, there's, you know, the clouds parting the shaft of light, from heaven, and the Lord spaketh unto me about the, uh, you know, the wonders of Ronald Reagan. It was that I'm open to empirical evidence. I began life as a doctor, and the empirical evidence from the Great Society, the war on poverty, all these great liberal entitlement programs, was that not only was it not working, but it was undermining the very communities it was trying to help. So it, during the 80s and into the 90s, as that kind of empirical evidence began to grow, I began to shift my view from what you might call a 
social democratic uh, center left view to one that where I'm much more of a small government, uh, John Stewart Mill type conservative. And that's sort of how I've defined myself. You begin uh, things that matter with what matters lives of the good and the great, the innocence of dogs, the cunning of cats, the elegance of nature, the wonders of space, the perfectly thrown outfield assist. The difference between historical guilt and historical responsibility, homage and sacrilege in monumental architecture, fashion and follies on the finer uses of the F word. As soon as I read that, I'm sorry to go back to Obama, but I thought, where does the current president of the United States fit on that list? Well, I, I didn't want it to be, you know, about Barack Obama. I wanted it to be about things that matter, about things that are larger. There are, there are several columns in the book where I try to talk about the distinctions between the beliefs of liberalism and conservatism, and Obama is the jumping-off point. That famous statement he made, if you have a business, if you, have, if you are a success, you, you didn't believe it, that basically it's the state that makes you great, and that's the title of the essay, that the state make you great. And I try to make the conservative argument, I mean, the liberal argument is that it all comes from the state, and the conservative argument that in fact not, that the real influences are not government, that civil society, all the outside influence except the government, the ones like family and church, community, PTA, and all the things that impinge on your life and which, and this is the key conservative insight, the great Leviathan state, the expanding federal state, the expanding welfare state, squeezes out and marginalizes and diminishes all these other institutions, the family, the church, etc., private charities. And that's why the conservative argument against the great state is, beside the fact that it doesn't work very well, which is, as you can see with our experiment in national health care, uh, the fact that it squeezes out all the vibrant, important communal institutions which keep a society alive and free. So that I try to make that case in the book. Some of it is about Obama, but very little about him, the man. It's all about, and the arguments go way back to the 1980s, of course, because the book spans the 30 years, where Obama is the latest incarnation, and I would say the most, if you like, the most leftist, the most radical incarnation of the American liberal impulse. Part two of my interview with Charles Krauthammer, right after this. You're only as good as your word, and he stands by his. This is The Roy Green Show. Thinking about uh, Charles Krauthammer, who passed away on uh, Thursday. So in 2014, I had the opportunity to speak with Mr. Krauthammer, and it was about his book, Things That Matter, and it was about things that matter. Here's part two of the interview. In uh, Things That Matter, you cover, let's talk about some of the other issues, chess, polygamy, the 9-11 terror attack, uh, I mentioned baseball, and physician-assisted death, which to me is the final act of compassionate health care. Uh, to name just uh, some of the things that you included, what would you want readers of Things That Matter to most focus on or get out of the book if the political equation can be set aside? Well, in fact, yes. Uh, I tried to explain in the introduction that I had intended to write a book entirely about columns outside of politics. I mean, about all the wonderful, the beautiful things, the things you mentioned in, the, in reading from my introduction. Uh, there are, I mean, articles on um, art and music and chess and baseball and the finer uses of the F word, which happens to be one of my 
folded columns. I wanted to start the book with that, but my publisher intimated that I might have to be involuntarily committed if I started a book with the praise of the F word. I start with other things. So I wanted to write about these beautiful and elegant things. That in, in fact, in the end, I, write, I ended up writing a book where there's sort of a neat division between the bad and then the political, the political parts. Because I really thought, as I tried to explain in the introduction, in the end, however much we don't like our politics, however grubby and grasping and manipulative it is, in the end, politics is sovereign. Because if you get your politics wrong, all the beautiful and elegant things in life are wiped away. You know, Germany, 1933, look at North Korea today. You've got to get your politics right. I would say that North America is about the most shining example of a civilization, yours and ours, two countries that have gotten it right, allowing the flourishing of the individual. But you look around the world and you can see what the terrible consequences are of getting it wrong. So that's why I sort of have this division both inside myself and inside the book between the political and the non-political. And in fact, what I write about in the, the biographical introduction is I had that division that dilemma all the way through. Because I started out as a physician, and it's a wonderful life, it's a very noble life. But in the end, I had the feeling that it was operating on a very narrow scale, and there was so much happening that would affect uh, large numbers of people, and that necessarily is politics. So that eventually I abandoned medicine at a rather young age so I could be involved in political discourse and in public life. And that sort of reflected that change, uh, that, that division and that choice is reflected in the content of the book. Uh, if we don't get our politics right, then everything else flows downhill or negatively, I suppose, yes. uh, from there on. Now, when we in Canada look at the United States federal government and the discord between Republicans and Democrats, we wonder how Washington has, in fact, become so dysfunctional. We ask ourselves, do Republicans and Democrats remember they were Americans, or is party politics and party power more significantly important to at least some in Congress and maybe in the White House than the pragmatic needs of the nation? And by the way, we ask that of our own federal capital, at least from time to time. Except that you have a different structure which prevents the paralysis that our Constitution was meant to actually achieve. I mean, in a parliamentary system, but you really have a rotating dictatorships because the executive and the legislative are one. You have a majority, if you have, obviously, you have coalitions, but you, you have a, if you control a majority in parliament, you can actually enact what you want. Here, you can be president, but if you don't control the two branches, the two houses, House and Senate, or even uh, if you don't control them both, as we can see with Obama, you can do nothing if there's a resistant opposition as there is in the House of Representatives. You mentioned health care. We certainly have our issues with our health care system in this country. Uh, and I, I've often, often thought it's because of the political component that we're having the trouble that we're having. I, a good friend of mine is a cardiologist, had him on the air some years ago, and I said, if our health care system itself were a patient in a hospital, which ward would it be in? And yeah. He said palliative care. <laughs> Obamacare, yeah. Obamacare itself, uh, is this the worst piece of policy that's been put forward uh, in the United States for decades? I would say in the history of man. Uh, I go back to Cro-Magnon days. Uh, this is 2,500 pages of contradictory, uh, arbitrary, uh, thought up out of thin air, regulations and rules, so many of which 
contradict and conflict with each other, that it is simply hopeless. I mean, at least your system, whatever people think about it, makes sense. I mean, it has a logic to it. You get your card, you go to the doctor, the government will pay for it, you have your co-pays, you have your, your regulations, but for God's sake, it's a, it's a comprehensible, logical system. This one is a hybrid of so much, and there's such arbitrary regulations and rules that no one knows what the hell is going on. The insurers don't even know who's enrolled in their system. Uh, the the uh, websites aren't working. We have all these contradictory policies. It's, I mean, apart from your politics, you could be left, right, or center on this. Uh, it's a mess, and it is a needless mess, which is wrecking simply because of its inefficiencies and contradictions. Uh, what is one of the great health care systems in the world? Final question for you. Canada, you were born in uh, New York City, but as you pointed out, you uh, spent most of your formative years of your youth uh, in Canada and in Quebec. How closely do you follow what goes on in Canada and perhaps even in the province of Quebec? Well, I do follow from a distance. Uh, E.J. Dion, who's a well-known liberal columnist, he and I share this uh, love of Canada. His parents came from French Canada. He grew up in New England. Uh, so we always call each other on election night, and we check on the returns. And I try to get the CBC fee or whoever uh, so I can check the writings. I love that word, the writings, instead of constituencies. I have a great interest in Canada. I think it's one of the great exemplars of a democracy and decency, uh, decent societies on the planet. I'm really happy when I have a chance to go back. I've given speeches and uh, done some debates in Toronto and other places. Uh, so I'm very, yes, I do try to keep an eye. I'm very, I'm, I'm rather partisan. I think that uh, Prime Minister Harper is a very courageous man, particularly what he's done for Canadian foreign policy. The speech he gave in Jerusalem, I think, is one of the great courageous speeches ever given by a, a Prime Minister of any country. And I have great admiration for how he's carried uh, the flag for the country and presented it to the world. I know that obviously there are much more, uh, the, the, the much more critical views of him as to domestic governance, but I think the face he's shown to the world has been a rather remarkable one. So I must say that I look back with uh, fondness on my younger years in Canada uh, and with pride of having some, shall we say, secondary association with such a great country. Charles, thank you very much for the time. It's a pleasure. Charles Crodhammer. 2014, um, of the more than, I just tweeted, of the more than 80,000 interviews I've uh, done in, in my career, that one is going to be one of, always be one of my favorites. And I do appreciate the opportunity of, uh, of speaking with Charles Crowdhammer. He was 68 when he passed away on Thursday.